Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Hey, before we, we jump into the Word this morning, um, Scripture says, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. And I, I, I need to confess something to you this morning. So this, this week, I was down uh, in L.A., um, for a series of meetings with Foursquare, our denominational leadership. And while I was there, I found myself within about a mile and a half of my old college campus. And how do you know, how many of you know that college is not always where we make the best decisions, right? So I'm down in that part of the world and um, I'm, I'm meeting with some friends. And you, you know what it's like when guys get together sometimes, they're kind of spurring each other on to not, again, the most brilliant things. And so I'm down in L.A., I'm right near my college, I'm hanging out with the boys, and guys, I made a mistake. I did something I have not done since I was in college. I went to a Dodger game. I'd, I didn't just go to a Dodger game. Some of you guys are like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I thought we were getting a new pastor. I didn't just go to a Dodger game. I ate a Dodger dog. Hope. Oh, and I liked it. I just, I can't tell you the shame I had to wrestle with all the way. And then they won. Forgive me. Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Go Mariners. Anyway, okay. Sorry, did I scare you for a second? You guys are such a loving church, so your faces were like, what did he do? Went to a Dodger game. First time since college. And dang it, I had fun. Okay. Um, we're going <laughs> to jump back into the word this morning now that you've been traumatized. And what, you know, one of my all-time favorite things to do as a pastor uh, and just a Christ follower is to answer people's questions. So when we're walking through a series like Galatians and something just makes you go, hmm, come ask me. What I'm going to do this morning is we're going to take just a brief pause from Galatians and answer some of the questions that have come up. Uh, some of the questions that have come up are things like, uh, if we're saved apart from the law, why did God give it in the first place? And do I have to follow any of it now? Um, another question was, if justified means just like I had never sinned, why would a Christian need to repent? If I've been forgiven for all of my sins, past, present, and future, do I still need to ask for forgiveness now when I sin? So we're going to look at those and a couple other questions, and I want to redefine again, just, just look at some of the terms, some of the definitions that we came up with a couple weeks ago, because I know sometimes, man, when you're studying Paul, it can feel like a fire hose of information, right? So is it okay to just kind of take a quick step back and kind of look at this one more time? Okay, good. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with another letter Paul wrote. Um, Paul, Paul was always writing to churches to bring clarity or correction, and so you find the same themes in many of Paul's letters. So this morning, uh, we're going to find ourselves in Romans chapter 3, and he's dealing in the book of Romans, again, with this tension between Jew and non-Jew, which we call Gentile, and how you are saved. Is it through the law or is it through grace alone? So beginning in Romans 3, verse 9, he says this. He says, what shall we, and he's talking about Jews at this point, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? 
Not at all. For we, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So that part of Paul's letter, he is reaching back to the Old Testament. He's actually quoting some things from Jewish scripture. So what does it mean that no one is righteous? What does the word righteous mean? Now, if, if you've got kids and they love Finding Nemo and, and Squirt is your guy, uh, righteous means cool, righteous means awesome, righteous means totally tubular. If you're not a parent and don't know what I'm talking about, just smile and nod your head and we'll move on. The word righteous in the Old Testament is from the Hebrew word sadik, and it means right or straight, like straight as an arrow. The Greek word for righteousness that Paul is using is the word dikaiosune, diakasune. Isn't that a fun one to say? You want to try it? No, I didn't think so. It means to do justice or to do right. So the word righteousness has more to do with doing right than being right. So we've, we've talked, we, kind of in English, we've taken that term like self-righteous. You hear that pretty often, and it's someone who thinks they are right to the expense of everyone else. But when we're reading Paul, we need to understand that he is leaning into different language, and the language of righteousness has more to do with a state of being or a state of behaving. It has more to do with doing right than it does with being right. But it comes from an inner rightness or a capacity to do good. So Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, righteousness is the simple ability to do the right thing. The ability to do good wherever you are, whether we're talking about the justice system, the education system, the political system, your job, your home, um, your important relationships, Being righteous has simply to do with the ability to do the right thing. This is what God envisioned when he created us, when he created Adam and Eve in the beginning of Genesis. Scripture says he made them in his image. It means he made them righteous. Adam and Eve were morally good. But when they chose to sin, they fell from a righteous state into a sinful state. And they became corruptors. They made things bad rather than making things good. Their job was to produce human flourishing wherever they were, to make the world better, to reflect God's glory back to him. But because they were no longer righteous, because they were no longer morally good, because they lost the ability to do the right thing, everything around them that they touched became corrupted. And we see from the moment they became unrighteous that the story moved forward with jealousy and envy and and murder. And this was passed on from generation to generation all the way down to us, which is why Paul says no one is righteous. No one is morally good or kind or benevolent is what that good word means. But God didn't want to leave us in that condition. We shared this verse from 2 Corinthians 5, 21 last week. Speaking of Jesus, it says, For our sake, for you and me, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. 
God's plan has always been that men and women lead lives as stewards of his creation. That we express his righteousness. We would be a righteous expression of who he is. Not just an inner goodness, but righteousness has to do with doing, with doing the right thing. So he had to restore our ability to be righteous, to be morally good, so we can care as he cares, so we can serve as he served. We cannot act like Jesus unless we become like Jesus. This is Paul's tension and what he's trying to explain when he says, Jesus took our sin upon himself and took his righteousness and placed it within us. This is what scripture means, part of what it means when it says we're a new creation. He has made us new. He has made us right. He has made us righteous. He has given us a capacity we did not have before we were born again. And then he places us, right, the church on Monday in the places that he wants us to be, and he empowers us to represent him there as a loving, a leading, a healing, and a restoring presence. Being righteous has to do with behaving rightly. But we can only behave rightly if we have been made right by God. You track and you see how those two connect? We are both made righteous, meaning we're, we're given the ability, and then Paul says we're called to pursue righteousness. So just because I'm able to do something doesn't mean that I always do it. Anyone else? Okay, so just because I have the ability not to go to a Dodgers game doesn't mean that I always lean into not going. Sometimes I just succumb and I give up and I go. We have been made righteous. We've been given the capacity. But Paul says, now that you've been made with the ability to do good, now pursue righteous things. Pursue, give yourself to behaving righteously. Paul goes on to say, No one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness that we're talking about is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. So he says, no one is justified by the law. So two questions you might have. What does it mean to be justified? And what the heck is the law? Let's start with to justify. To justify means to acquit or to declare righteous. Okay, It's different than being righteous. These terms overlap and they bleed into one another. Right To justify means to acquit. It's, it's the legal part that separates me from my past. The, a statement has been made by a judge that declares me not guilty. Not only not guilty, justification means I've been declared as if I never had been guilty. So we're made righteous, he does something internally, and we're declared righteous by God. He speaks that over us, but he also speaks that to hell. The scripture says one of Satan's names is the accuser of the brethren, of the sisters. And so God, when he justifies us, not only makes us righteous, but he declares to any and all who would listen, I have made you righteous. God changes our nature, new creation, and he erases the record of our sins. So, when we are born again, 
God makes a declaration. He declares us not guilty. He removes the stain and he removes the record of our sin. And he gives us his spirit that we might be and behave in a right or a righteous way. So justification, to justify is to declare what he has done for us in Christ. You with me so far about how those two connect? They happen simultaneously. We are given his righteousness, and because we have surrendered our lives to follow Christ, God declares, he echoes out into the universe, not guilty, never guilty. Okay? Still with me? Okay, we're going to Bible college a little bit. I know that. Stay with me. Now, all the things that kept us from being able to behave righteously or behave rightly are done away with. And Paul says, the way this happens is not by adhering to Jewish law. And he's speaking about what's called the law of Moses. Exodus 21 through 24 and 31 through 34 tell the story of the people of Israel having come, having come out, having been delivered from Egyptian captivity, standing at the foot of Mount Sinai where God gives the law, the Jewish law, to Moses. And then Moses comes down and he explains it to the people. Now, when Israel was delivered from captivity, God said a number of things to them. One of them was that they are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, which means they were a people set apart for his purposes, which is wonderful. But when you think of their history, they had been slaves for centuries. And so he had to teach them what it looked like to live not as an enslaved people, but rather as a holy people. In other words, Jesus had got them out of Egypt. God had got them out of Egypt, but now he had to get Egypt out of them. What does it look like to be a holy people? What does it look like to be a chosen people? This was the purpose of the law, to teach them what they didn't know. God said, in essence, Israel, I am your king. And in my kingdom, people live this way. We don't steal. We don't murder. We don't lie. We don't go after our neighbor's wife. This is what righteous living, this is what doing the right thing looks like. So Israel was given the law so they could understand how they were supposed to live. But they found that while the law could make them aware of their sin, it could not free them from it. They did not change. They remained the same people who time after time, as you read the Old Testament, fell short of God's standard. It's like God held up a mirror and he said, guys, this is what, have you ever gone to one of the, never mind. I'm going to stay on time and on task. It's almost like God held up a mirror and said, this is what righteousness looks like. And they stood in front of the mirror and went, holy cow, I don't look like that. I do not look like that. So God put a number of sacrificial systems in place so they could be forgiven for their sins and restored in relationship to God. But the law, more than anything else, showed them how far from God's standard they really were. Paul says it was through the law when I saw what I was supposed to be like, that I realized what a horrible sinner was. The law could direct behavior. It could say, live this way. But it couldn't change a heart. 
It couldn't make us righteous. It showed us righteousness, but it showed us also how unrighteous we were. The law revealed human sin to such a degree so we could see how desperately we needed God's mercy. And so Paul says, listen, righteousness has to come apart from the law. We've been following the law for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and Scripture still says none of us are righteous. Although the law and the prophets pointed forward to a moment when a new way of becoming righteous would arrive in Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 17, he says, listen, don't think I've come to abolish or don't think I've come to set aside the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Jesus is saying, I am how this is actually going to come to pass. Everything you were trying to do through the law, to adhere to a particular standard of morality, of righteousness, everything you found you couldn't do, I am going to make possible for you. It highlighted your need for me. And so Paul says, so now, since Jesus has come, he has died, he has resurrected, now this righteousness that's always been missing from Adam and Eve's sin till this day has been given through faith in Jesus to everyone who believes, both the Jew and the non-Jew. How did this happen? I'm glad you asked. Verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Paul again going, there is nobody righteousness. If you, nobody righteous. If you think you are, get over yourself. However, he says, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So righteousness and, and justification are things that have happened to or for us. And now Paul says, let me explain how it happened. Through the redemption that came by Christ. This is our last vocab term for the day. Redemption. Redemption means to save through the payment of a ransom. If your family was, was captured in battle and you, you wanted to win them back and you couldn't fight to overcome that adversary, you could redeem them, you could buy them back by paying whatever price was requested of you. It was definitely going to cost you something. The word redemption or to redeem speaks of how we are justified. Jesus at the cross paid our ransom. He bought us back. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The whole point of Jesus coming and then going to the cross was to buy us back. His death on the cross was a ransom payment sufficient to cover the debt due for all human sin. That's why, that's why Scripture teaches that once we have received Christ as our Lord and Savior, there is nothing else we have to do. You don't add the works of the law to it because he paid the price to redeem or to ransom humanity. His death bought us back. It it purchased our freedom. Our freedom from what? Our freedom from the power of sin that controlled us. Paul will say later, later in this letter, he says, listen, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to righteousness. No, we, we, we choose not the slavery of sin, but the slavery of, and, and he's just using that word, Paul called himself, by the way, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That word means, I'm a slave. 
he, he looked at what Jesus had done for him and said, I have no other recourse other than to offer myself completely as a slave. God, I am yours. Do with me as you will. So how does this fit together? We're made righteous because we've been redeemed. We've been purchased by Jesus' death. We've been freed from the power of sin. And now we are able to behave righteously. We can do the things that we could not before. Like the Jews in Egypt, we have been delivered from slavery and are now learning to live as God's people. We're we're learning to live as a holy nation. Anybody head exploding yet? Okay? May want to go back and watch this one a couple of times. I know. I know. I know. But these things are so important because when we understand them, they are so liberating and life-giving. Like, you may be listening right now like, oh, man, that's just a lot of information. When, when you understand what Jesus did and how Jesus did it, all of a sudden you're like, holy stinking cow. This is that he really did set me free. This really is something that he settled for all of eternity. I really can stand up straight. I really can behave as a child of God because the things I was once enslaved to, I am enslaved to no longer. Amen. So, so how does this relate to some of the questions that were asked? Let's walk through just a couple of them. One of the questions was this. If we're saved by faith in Jesus and not by the law, now do we just throw out the law? It's a fair question. And people seem to have been asking Paul in these early churches the very same thing. Because when you get down to verse 31, Paul gives them an answer. He asks a rhetorical question and then he answers it. So he says, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all, he says. We uphold the law. Jewish law was separated into two primary categories. Moral law and ceremonial law. So moral laws were based on God's nature, and they covered regulations regarding justice, respect, uh, sexual conduct, relationship with other people. Think, Think the Ten Commandments. Don't do these. God's people don't do these. It damages you, and it damages others. Ceremonial law for the Jews, the word was literally translated customs of the nations. They have to do with how to maintain a right relationship with God. So here's your sacrificial system. Here's what you do when somebody gets sick. Here's what you do when somebody sins against you. Here's all of these things. And this is where you find the teaching about the feasts and the festivals, the ceremonial washings and how to worship. Specific things that were meant to show that God's people were distinct from their pagan neighbors. That's why God gave it. And these are also, important to note, the kinds of laws that the false teachers were trying to impose on the church in Galatia. Paul wasn't upset because they were coming around going, don't murder, don't covet, don't steal. Paul was upset because they were coming around going, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow this rule, and you have to follow this rule, and you have to follow this rule. When Jesus went to the cross, he instituted a new covenant, Scripture says, that we celebrate at communion. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 explains this. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. What was Jesus saying? How do we understand that scripture today? Those who have been justified, 
those who have been made righteous, those who have been redeemed by Jesus will naturally do the things required by the Old Testament law. That's why Paul says we don't set it aside. We don't just say no. Because remember, the law was meant to show us how to live as God's people. So now that we've been given the capacity to be morally good, we're no longer slaves to sin, and we will naturally do the things the Old Testament moral law pointed to if, and it's a big if, we pursue righteousness. That's, that's where our responsibility comes in. God has given us the capacity, and so now we make the choice to walk it out, to follow it. I no longer need the ceremonial law to teach me how to relate to God. Why? Because we now relate to God, we come to God through Jesus. I don't need any other way to approach God the Father other than the shed blood of Jesus on the cross on my behalf. But, right, no one would say because Jesus has forgiven me, I can murder people now. I'm not under the law. I can run away with my neighbor's wife. I can lie. all. You'd be like, are you, how stupid are you? None of us would say that. But Paul would say, because Jesus, because God has forgiven us through Jesus and accepted us, we can come to the Father anytime we want and anytime we need. I don't need the law to show me how to get there. I just look to Jesus, and I've received his spirit if I have been born again. So that's, that's how we deal with the law. God says, if you are really my people, you will naturally do the things that the moral law was trying to teach people to do. And the good news is, they couldn't, but we can. So here's, here's another question that I was asked. If we've been justified, and if it's just like we had never sinned, why do we need to repent? Such a good question. And so we need to define our terms again. Repent does not mean to, to weep and wail and put ashes on our head and tear our clothes like it did in the Old Testament. To repent, in its simplest definition, means to turn around or to change your mind, to think differently about things. Although you and I now, because we've been made righteous, have the capacity for righteous acts and are no longer bound by sin, we still have the capacity to sin. Just me. Okay. Ask your spouse. They'll let you know. We still have the capacity to sin. The word sin, in its, in its simplest form, means to miss the mark. So we all have the capacity to miss the mark, to get it wrong, to do something not right. And so in those moments, we turn around, and we get back on target, and we choose diff to think differently about our behavior. I'm going in this way. I'm doing what I shouldn't do. I'm robbing. I'm killing. I'm lying. I'm cheating. I'm watching. Whatever. Whatever your thing is, I... I have the capacity not to, but I have chosen to give myself to these things. The Holy Spirit goes, John, that's not good for you. You need to repent. I go, you're right, I do. I repent. It means to turn around. So should a Christian repent? Yes. Unless you, like Jesus, never get it wrong. But God has made room for us to repent. That leads to the second question. If all our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, and they have, that's what it means to have been justified. Should we still ask for forgiveness when we sin? Great question. Jesus indicated that we should. Because when the disciple says, Jesus, teach us how to pray, part of that prayer was, forgive us our sins. 
as we forgive those who sin against us. John, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as a judge, church, God has already accepted Jesus' sacrifice as full payment for all of our sins. As, as he sees us as made righteous in his role as a judge. As a father, God knows that sin affects our relationship with him and with others. And so it needs to be addressed. When we walk through mud, we get dirty. It clings to us. And asking for forgiveness, though we are redeemed and made righteous, is how we get it off again. Asking for forgiveness doesn't ask God to do something he hasn't already done. Asking for forgiveness has more to do with us. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. This points to the nature and the condition of our heart and our relationships more than it does with our standing with God. Human tendency, you see it in the very beginning, is to hide from God when we sin. Shame comes in and we just we, we duck our head and we run away. Repentance and asking for forgiveness restores relationship. Not that God is far from us. He says he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. God doesn't withdraw from me when I sin. But I tend to withdraw from him. So God introduces a mechanism of repentance and forgiveness to keep our relationship strong and healthy. When I come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, I'm telling him I'm changing my mind about that behavior. I'm inviting the Holy Spirit to do a work of renewal or restoration in me that I might not find myself going down that path again. And the beautiful thing is, in how God has set the whole thing up, is we come and ask for forgiveness as a people who are already forgiven. Already forgiven. Somebody, somebody did something this week, said something to me that really landed. I mean, I was upset. It's hurt. And because I never want junk in relationships, I called them. So if you're wondering if it was you, it wasn't you. I called them. And I said, hey, listen, you said this. It felt like this. I don't want any weirdness between us. So I just needed to call and tell you I felt that way. And they said, would you forgive me? And I said, I forgave you the minute you said it. This is just about keeping our relationship good. That's how forgiveness works with God for those of us who are already born again. I forgave you before you even did it. But bringing that to me is just about making sure things are right between you and between me. That's what we get to celebrate at communion, which is what we're going to do now. So would you, would you take your communion elements? See, we, we come to communion as a people who have been redeemed. We've been purchased back. People who have been justified, declared not guilty. As a people who have been declared righteous, God has given us the capacity and he invites us to live into the capacity he's given us as we pursue righteousness but sometimes we get a little mud on our boots we find ourselves tracking down some roads we probably shouldn't usually i mean with with good intentions all those guys that went out to 
to Burning Man thinking they were going to have a great time and the storms came and now they're stuck in the mud. Part of communion is a celebration. And part of a communion, part of the communion is, is kicking off the mud. And so as a people who are already forgiven, already redeemed, already righteous, are there areas that you're carrying right now that you need to bring to the Lord and ask for forgiveness? If so, do that as we come to communion. You're already forgiven. He already paid. He doesn't have to buy you back again. This is about making sure our relationship with him is clean and open and pure. Because of a work that Jesus was willing to do for us. Can we share communion together? Celebrate that we have been redeemed, justified, made righteous. Lord Jesus, we, we come to this moment. God, I just have to say thank you. It's, it's such an inconsequential word in light of what you've done. Lord, the way you have worked in me in ways that I don't even fully understand but I benefit from. God, I didn't really understand righteousness or even justice or redemption, but I was able to live in the freedom that it provided for me. Lord, thank you for being willing to break bread with me, to be in relationship with me, and to bring wholeness to me. We receive the bread. Jesus, we, we come to the cup. Jesus called it the cup of his new covenant. Lord, it is by his shed blood that we've been bought back from slavery. As literally as Israel was purchased from slavery in Egypt, we have been redeemed. We have been made new. You have taken our sins says in Ezekiel and throwing them so far away you remember them no more and so having asked afresh for forgiveness and restoration of relationship Lord God we remember your sacrifice as we take the cup Amen Isn't it good to be a people set free? Just does that help a little bit in your understanding? <laughs> Three of you? I know. I know. Like I said when I started, when you got questions, bring them to me. Um, I won't always have the answer in the moment, but I'll always do the work to find the answer. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.